This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Hi, guys. Today, we've got a special guest on the podcast. Her name is Elisa Childers. So she is a former contemporary Christian music recording artist turned Christian apologist. So I've never found one of those before, so it's a pretty awesome conversation. She was a part of the all-female Christian pop music group Zoe Girl back in the day. So if you were like a 13-year-old girl in the early 2000s, you probably knew about Zoe Girl. After her music career, she found her way into the world of Christian apologetics, and she is an outspoken opponent of what a lot of people would call, what she would call, progressive Christianity. So she's the author of the book, Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. Now, this was a very, very interesting interview to me because I circled this one on the calendar. For whatever reason, I felt like we were going to have an amazing conversation because, again, you guys know my my standards. When we have gals come on the podcast, they've got to be gangsters. They've got to got, have a way of speaking that is going to speak to my predominantly male audience. And Elisa certainly fits that bill. But if you saw the notes for my interview versus what we actually ended up talking about, you would know that the interview went well because we kept running into subject matters. I was like, no, 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 we, we've got to talk about this more. We've got to take this to bedrock. We got to keep going. I really, really enjoyed my time with her. We're going to have her on again later on this year to talk some more about uh, some other books and some other things that she has going on. But this is a great one for you guys for today. So without further ado, let's get into it. Alisa Childers, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Great to be with you. Well, I was just telling you off air, I've been looking forward to this one for a while now because here's the thing. This is a man's podcast. The overwhelming majority of the people that listen to this and my guests are male. But when we bring a gal on, there's only one thing they got to make sure that they do, and that's be a gangster. And I feel like between, uh, you know, some of the things we talk about off air and some of the things we're going to be talking about, I feel like my audience is going to agree with my assessment of you. But before we get into some of those really, really rough topics, we need to start small and start easy. Give us a little bit of information on your upbringing, on your childhood, just kind of establish the foundation for Elisa. Well, thank you. It's an honor to join the boys club for a little while here. That's right. I'll do my best. So my background, I grew up in Los Angeles, uh, California. I've been a Christian my whole life. My mom and dad, uh, you know, gave me the real gospel. They modeled an authentic Christianity for me. And part of that meant they were reading the Bible with us and, you know, repenting in front of us and to us and uh, praying with us. But also we did a lot of homeless ministry. We did a lot of street evangelism growing up. So my dad would take us out to Hollywood Boulevard on Halloween and we would share the gospel with people. So in that sense, I didn't grow up in a Christian bubble, but um, I I just, I never really had tested my faith intellectually. So that wouldn't come till much later, but uh, a little bit more about my background. So my dad was in what is arguably the first Christian rock band to ever gain nationwide success. So this was back in the the 70s when he and a bunch of his hippie friends all got saved in the Jesus movement. And uh, so I kind of grew up with a dad who toured a lot. I got to travel a lot. I followed in his footsteps and was a part of the, the Christian pop group Zoe Girl between about 1999 and 2007 or eight. And then, uh, so I moved to Nashville in 99. And then this apologetics thing I'm doing now and uh, is brand new. I never saw that coming because I've never viewed myself as an intellectual. I've always been much more of a, a flaky artist. And so uh, that's what I'm doing now though, writing books. And um, I've, I've been called a professional party pooper. So that's kind of what I do now. 
Well, when I was reading your books, that's all I felt the entire time. I was like, she's just raining on my parade. No, that, that's obviously not uh, what we're going to be talking about. But we are going to get way, way, way more into some of those things that you talked about. But you did mention Zoe Girl. So you're right there smack dab in the, you know, uh, contemporary Christian music industry. And we're not really going to get into the industry. Everybody has their own opinions on it. But what I want to kind of address is on episode 176 of this podcast, the only reason I know that is because I'm asked about it constantly. I did an episode called Contemporary Worship Music is for Women and Effeminate Men. And it is something that I wanted to talk about for a very, very long time because me and a lot of guys like me, they, when they listen to contemporary Christian music or when they're at church and that's being sung and, you know, I don't really understand music, but it's a little too high for their, their vocal range and all these different things. A lot of guys just sit there with their hands in their pockets and they don't know why they're not like getting into it. Is something wrong with them? I had a worship pastor tell me that I wasn't saved because I didn't listen to, you know, contemporary Christian music. And so for you having been in the industry, but obviously you still pay attention. I'm assuming that's still kind of part of your playlist. Uh, I don't know if Zoe girl is still part of your playlist. That seems a little self-serving, but like, maybe that that's something like, tell us a little bit about that because I'm not alone. And that's been the overwhelming thing I've gotten from guys is Kyle, you gave a voice to something that I've been worried about since I was a kid. I just can't get into this music. Okay, so you're about you opened a big can with me on this. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> so I've I have some thoughts on this topic. I actually, up until COVID, I was a, a worship leader at a church where I it was an artist in residence situation. So every four to six weeks, I would travel to this church and I would do all the music for the weekend. And uh, it you know, I didn't have I couldn't do everything I wanted. You know, if I could wave a magic wand, I would have probably done things different. But you know, it was a learning experience. But one of my frustrations was exactly what you're describing. But I actually felt like you, what you're describing. A lot of the music that we would sing, a lot of the songs that were in the rotation, and these were just you know the songs that all the churches are doing, um, were extremely frustrating to me. And even as the worship leader up on the stage. I felt myself struggling to uh, to get into it and to, to feel what I'm apparently supposed to be feeling while I'm singing these songs. And so I did a bit of analysis on it just in my own mind. And I think that part of the problem is that, first of all, this whole uh, this whole topic of modern worship, the way that it's evolved, it's like a brand new thing. There's no biblical precedent for what we do in most churches on a Sunday morning. And what I mean by that is, of course, we know we have the songs, hymns, spiritual songs, and then there's there's evidence in church history of there being singing and, and that type of thing. But this whole concept of get on a stage with, you know, put on a basically a rock concert for 20 or 30 minutes before the, the pastor preaches, that's something we've come up with. I'm not saying that that in and of itself is wrong, but that is something that we have invented along with, uh, you know, the contemporary Christian music industry. In fact, I mentioned my dad, often people will say, well, he was a founder or a pioneer of the contemporary Christian music industry. And I'm always kind of like, no, he's actually not because none of those guys ever saw that as being a career. They didn't think you could make money or become mm. famous. They were singing their Jesus songs. And then it turned into an industry that I don't think any of them were planning on or foresaw. So you have the mix of uh, being a part of an industry that is primarily a money-making industry. So most of the Christian record labels are owned by secular companies. I think that's a bit different in the worship realm. But even in my experience of being in the Christian music industry, whatever sort of lyrical thing that's popular, that's what the writers are pressed to write more of. So I, now again, I've been out of the industry for 20, 20, no, 
I don't know how many years. I'm really bad at math, but it's been a while. <laughs> it's been a while. But back when I was in the industry, they they had this model of a person they were marketing the music to. And this was a woman named Becky. Right. So Becky was a soccer mom in a van and mm-hmm. she's the one you're marketing your music to. So this swings around to your idea of the feminization of worship music. So Becky listens to a lot of worship music. And, and, and so what I noticed happened uh, maybe 20 years ago when the worship industry started to emerge was that songs moved, started to move away from declaring the attributes of God. I mean, think about how great there are. Think about yeah. our, um, a mighty fortress is our God. Uh, it moved away from that and it moved more into how I feel when I'm worshiping God. The problem with that is that not everybody feels that way when they walk into church. So when I'm expected to start the worship service singing a song about how great it makes me feel to sing this song about God, but I don't actually feel that way, then I feel like I'm being disingenuous. And then I have this whole internal struggle with the entire worship set. And so as a worship leader, I wish that worship leaders would get back to actual worship, which doesn't have to be with smoke machines and lights and all that stuff but just get up and sing about the attributes of God and worship him. And I think we would see more men becoming involved in that. So I opened up the can of worms and you took us way down the rabbit hole. So we're going to stay here. No, we're staying here because this is important. I'm going to blow up the rest of my interview, but a few notes that I was jotting down as you were talking is I can tell because I'm like, I'm very critical of how people present themselves. That's kind of my training. That's kind of my background. So I'm very critical of myself and how I present myself, but I can tell whenever you're trying to manipulate me with music, whenever you do the bridge and then the bridge again, and then you do the bridge, 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 and then another bridge and then the chorus, and then we're going to crescendo. We're going to create this environment. And there are people that literally are on staff at churches to help the spirit move during worship to help, you know, and for me, we've created an industry of giving out spiritual Skittles. And so you go to the mega church, you're there for an hour. It's, it's efficient. You know, you find your parking place, you know, a golf cart takes you inside and you know, you grab your chips and your cookies and you go in there and you get your rock concert. And then you get your Ted talk with a few Bible verses sprinkled on top. You know, we're isogeting all the scripture as opposed to exegeting it and all those things. And it becomes a massive issue when these people think that they're doing what they, what God, what is honoring to God in that moment. And it's like, you have no idea. Like I went to one of those churches for over 10 years here in my backyard and I didn't grow at all because I wasn't being discipled. <clears throat> it was one of those things that was, that was very unnerving for me to kind of go through. But to talk about that a little bit more, because the other thing I know is that in a lot of these worship bands, the only actual Christian might be the the lead singer, the person with the, you know, the acoustic guitar and the tight pants on. And the rest are just professional musicians that they're just getting paid uh, to do sessions, you know, five, six, seven sessions over the weekend. And it does like, I know that. And it distracts me so much. So I don't know where you want to go with that, but keep going. So, yeah, let me, uh, so what you're describing with the bridge and the bridge and the chorus, and then another bridge, I've done that. Like I, yeah. I just have to admit, I have done that. And part of the problem that I experienced as a worship leader is that when you step into that role, you're kind of becoming part of a machine that's already well-oiled and kind of going down the road. And so you have to find your place in that machine. So I don't know if the average person knows this, but with most of the modern worship that you go into a church and you're singing in that service, there's um, backing tracks that are in the ears of the the people leading from the state, which you don't really have a choice. You have to do that bridge again in the chorus if you're doing that model. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you don't have power over whether or not you're doing that model. And so it's, and then, you know, for myself, 
I was constantly, I found myself in this internal struggle because I looked around at the people that I was working with. And these are wonderful Christian people. Like in this case, these were real Christians that they were just wanting to do what they thought they were supposed to do to lead people into worship. And sometimes we had great worship experiences. So I don't mean to like throw the whole thing under the bus, but it, it was a bit frustrating for me because I always had this woman in my ears. We called her Edna because she sounded like <laughs> this, this drunk lady smoking a cigarette, like cards, you know, <laughs> and so Edna is like screaming in your ears. And it's very hard to uh, get into a posture of worship with, you know, a drunk lady yelling in your ears about what, what to sing next. Um, but it's like this machine. And then there's people who are hired to train other people how to do this thing that I'm sitting there going, maybe we should question why we're doing it this way in the first place. I mean, some of the most meaningful times of worship I've ever experienced were when a guy just got up with a guitar and sang hymns. And, mm. you know, I'm not a hymn snob. Um, I think that there's some great modern hymns that people have written. There's even some really great modern worship songs that people have written lyrically. And, but I'm like you, when, when I feel like I'm being manipulated it's such a turnoff. And then what happens is because I want to do the right thing, I have this internal struggle. And then I spend the rest of the worship time fighting with myself inside, mm -hmm. trying to be cooperative with what they're doing, but also like not wanting to compromise what really feels wrong. Right. And it absolutely makes sense. And one thing I did with that episode is I introduced people to things like Christian metal. So bands like For Today or Oh Sleeper or any of these bands that when you read the lyrics, it's like reading a modern worship song, except we're storming the gates of hell, right? We're yeah. not talking about this Jesus guy, like he's some sort of like soft featured Danish guy that we're just going to embrace into our bosom and any cutesy bootsy him the whole time. Like yeah. it, it's aggressive and that's how I worship right now. There's not a whole lot of churches that are going to go out on a limb and have that style of music being played yeah. from the stage. That is a niche audience. But the, the concern I have and, and guys, I've already said it. We're blowing up this entire interview because like I, we have to keep going to bedrock on this. I feel like we're worshiping worship, right? Yes, because yes. when you hear people talk about, hey, are you an elevation person? Or are you a Bethel person? Or are you still a Hillsong person? And I think they're just, they're not even calling themselves Hillsong United. They're just Hill or Hillsong or something. And it's like, you're, I've, I've heard people and I've heard myself say it, if I'm being honest, man, I really like that church, but I just couldn't get into the music, right? When it's like, church is not about you. The Bible's not about you. The worship set shouldn't be about you and your preferences. But at the same time, I think this back ends to modern church being very, very repulsive of men. When men show up at these churches, they're, you know, the, the church staff is shocked when men don't volunteer and, you know, men aren't there, but their wives and kids are, and they're off playing golf or at the shooting range or you getting ready for a fantasy football draft or anything like that. But it's like when the church keeps communicating to a man, this isn't for you. We didn't have you in mind when we built out this lessons, you know, this series, we didn't have you in mind when we thought through the music and the song choice and all those different things. A man, if he doesn't feel like he's needed, he will go somewhere where he feels needed. And that could be into the arms of another woman. It could be in into the garage. It can be into the gym. He'll go somewhere else. And the churches just lament that. And they love to dunk on dads on Father's Day. But it's like, look, bro, you're the problem. You're one of the major reasons why these men aren't coming in here. So I think it, it has a lot to do with the macro issue of manhood being you know, suppressed in the church. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think that it's a, even if it's unintentional, it's an, a nod to feminism, to modern feminism. I think that even what I experience among women who are otherwise godly and they love the Lord, but there's this sense in which 
oh my gosh, if I say out loud that I don't think a woman should teach the Bible to a man on a Sunday morning from a pulpit, um, that's utterly shocking to most to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, of course, you know, I think that the roles that God has put us in are beautiful and they they contribute to everybody thriving when everybody is doing what they're supposed to be doing. Right. Um, but but I think, too, I wonder, too, as, as you were talking, I wonder, too, if there isn't fear because, you know, we're seeing a lot of abuse scandals coming out. Right. And, and I wonder, and, and there are like, I know women who have had horrible relationships with the men in their lives. And I think they're scared of how do I tell what's, you know, a, a, an unholy and ungodly type of dominance or masculinity versus what God, you know, unleashing what God has actually created men to be. And I think there can be a tension in a lot of people trying to figure that out. Because I had pretty good men in my life for the most part. Like my dad was, I mean, I always felt like my, you know, my husband's this way. My, my dad, man, they're my biggest fan. They're cheering me on. They want me to just, you know, there are no limits on what, you know, but a lot of women have grown up, I think, with some men pushing them down and not considering their opinion to be important. So there becomes this confusion, like, man, when a guy talks like that, maybe that's toxic masculinity and, and that's just going to oppress me. And there's just a lot of confusion, you know? Yeah. So uh, if you weren't going to say it, I was going to say it. The funny thing about toxic masculinity is almost every cultural description of it is inaccurate, right? Because they're saying, you know, a man opening uh, the door for a woman, that's toxic somehow. You know, a man telling somebody else, hey, can you watch your mouth? There's a bunch of women in here. Like that's, that's old fashioned. I remember I used to work in New York city and I, you know, people ask me, Kyle, why don't you cuss? Like, I've never heard you cuss. I was like, well, just because it's like, is that the only word you have available in your brain? And it comes out of your face. It just seems really, really uncouth. Like, why would you do that? And I, and they're like, oh, are you one of those guys that would like tell guys to chill out with their mouth if they're around women? It's like, yeah. And they looked at me like I had a boob on the top of my head. They're just like, what, what in the world? Like, are, are you kidding me? It's so old fashioned, but the, 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 I, love it. I, I love it though. When, when men do that, I was um, taking a, my class to get my carry permit. So I was the only woman in the class yeah. and the instructor cussed. And he just looked at me and said, sorry, ma'am. I love that. I right. Like, it's chivalry. That. Like awesome. I, I learned so much from just watching my father and I saw him be chivalrous when this is a man who lost his father when he was 13. And so he had to kind of find his own way into manhood and he did it, you know, imperfectly like all of us do. But part of the thing, Elisa, is these women that can't tell the difference between toxic masculinity and biblical masculinity is because they're not reading their Bibles. Because that's another thing inside the church is like we pay a professional Christian to read Mm -hmm. the Bible for us so that we don't have to, right? And we go to church to check the box so that we feel better. And so I think that's part of the issue as well, because you love people love, especially atheists, they love to just kind of throw things out there and say, this is why Christianity is bad. And, you know, look at the Inquisition and look at the Salem witch trials and look at the Crusades. And it's like, are you really judging a worldview based off of its abuse? Like on what planet does that make any philosophical sense? But you say it on Twitter and people are like, oh, oh, yeah, it sounds really, really good because they're just a dumb seal. And they're like, they'll just say yes to anything. But do you feel like there is that? Because I notice it even in myself. I've got a stack of Bibles here that sometimes I have to blow the dust off of them before I dig into them again. But why do we do that as kind of a modern Christian whenever people literally died so that we could have a thousand versions of the Bible on our phone and all kinds of ones that are, you know, leather bound and sitting right next to us. I think there's, there's a lot of confusion. I I think biblical illiteracy is a huge problem. It's an epidemic, a real epidemic. Epidemic. It's really real, but here's the problem too, 
even if you have people who know the Bible, there are so many people out there twisting it into a hundred knots. I, I think about uh, the Garden of Eden when the serpent says to Eve, did God really say? I don't think yeah. that's the question that the serpent is typically asking anymore. I mean, he's still asking that. But more than that, he's asking and, and behaving like how he behaved with Jesus when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness. You know, of course, Jesus appealing to the authority of Scripture to, to ward off the temptation of the devil. Well, the devil quotes scripture back to Jesus, yeah. but unlike the situation with Eve, he actually quotes it accurately. He quote, I believe it was Psalm 91. And, but what he was twisting wasn't what the words were, it's what the words meant. It was interpretation. And so we have this whole postmodern culture where everybody's afraid to make any sort of statement or claim to what the text could actually objectively mean. I mean, I, I think it might be shocking to some people. I don't know, probably not your audience. But when, like, when I tell, especially young people, when I'm training, I tell them there's only one correct interpretation of absolutely every single Bible verse. Right, correct. And they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, you may not always get to it perfectly, but there is one correct interpretation of every verse. And so our goal should be to figure out what that is, not just pick the one we like or say, I heard this person interpret it that way. So that's just my interpretation and you can have your interpretation. I mean, it's, we, that's a, that is totally bowing our knee to postmodernism and the deconstruction of texts that we saw come out of the postmodern philosophies of the sixties where, you know, Hey, words don't really have singular meanings. Right. So, you know, the interpreter has just as much authority to say what it means as the person who initially wrote the text. I mean, that's what we see with our Bibles. So even in the cases where people do know what it says, they're clueless how to figure out what it means. I agree with that. And also we love bumper sticker scripture. We, we love coffee mug scripture. We like things that we can fit on a t-shirt. And the problem is, is when you read the story of David and Goliath and think that you're David, right? And Matt Chandler pointed that out a long time when he basically went to Stephen Furtick's church and just like took a dump on him. Sorry, that's a little rude, but yeah, again, I apologize, madam, for, for saying something that was so uncouth there. But like, <clears throat> that, that is a real thing that people, they think that the, the one snippet of the scripture was meant specifically for them. When in actuality, that scripture might be meant for a specific people group at a specific time in history within the context of a larger story. And I don't mean the super hyperlinked, you know, Bible where this refers to this and this refers to that necessarily. I just mean maybe the entire chapter. You're pulling out one verse, but maybe you should read the entire chapter to have any idea what Paul is actually trying to communicate to you. But I swear to goodness, I'm, I'm, we have to get to your book because I thought it was fantastic. So I'm here I am going on all my diatribes, but we do have to talk about this book. Thank you so much for shooting my way. It's called Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. So we're going to pop into and out of this, obviously, because I've already messed up my entire interview. But from the very, very beginning, there was a quote very early in your book. It said, today, many of the most popular Christian authors, bloggers, and speakers are progressive. Entire denominations are now filled with those who identify as such. Yet many other Christians sit in the pews every Sunday, completely unaware that their church has adopted progressive ideology. Now, I said this to John Cooper, who's a mutual friend of ours. The fight used to be, Elisa, between atheists and Christians. That was the fight, right? How are we going to prove this? And, you know, are we going to have to use the cosmological argument or are we going to have to use experience or are we going to have to deal with the problem of evil? That's not the fight anymore. The fight is now biblical Christianity versus progressive Christianity because you can't fight on a divided front. 
So I can't co-sign what these progressive Christians are saying and then take that into an argument or a debate with somebody who doesn't believe in the you know spaghetti monster in the sky, as they would call it. Do you agree with that? Because I, I know some people get a little bit, you know, they're like, oh, we shouldn't be disputatious and we should love our brothers and we should avoid the schism that Satan's creating. But we can't effectively evangelize, in my opinion, until we, we get people on the other side of this progressive ideology. No. Oh, don't get me started. on. I just got you started. You have to go now. We're in it now. Yeah, this whole unity thing. It's like if you this this is why, uh, you know, jokingly, I was referred to as a party pooper, because, you know, if, if your goal is unity, then you might as well just become a universalist if that's the only goal. I mean, when Jesus prayed for unity, when the Bible calls us to unity, it's calling us to unify around the real gospel. And mm-hmm. anything that threatens that or seeks to change that or is trying to pick people off and make them disbelieve that is to be cut off and, and removed and guarded against. And I think this is so hard for so many Christians to think this way because they've been so trained, frankly, just this culture of niceness, you know, just so trained to be to be nice. And, and Hey, if you go around saying, Hey, you know, this, this person is actually leading people to hell with their theology. And they're telling people, this is a Christian view. We have to stand against that. Then you get accused of, you know, not promoting unity, but we have to understand that when the Bible talks about unity, it's unity around a very specific thing. And the apostle Paul, when he talked about uh, divisiveness, he blamed divisiveness on those bringing in the false gospels and the heresies, not on the people defending the real gospel. I, I think that you're absolutely right. And for the most part, Again, people are unaware. They're sitting in the pews and they're unaware because they're not really paying attention. As I said earlier, they're just checking a box. But and you go through this in a lot of detail in the book. And so that'll be in the show notes, guys. We're not going to be able to get into the whole book, obviously. But in another gospel, you talked about and you alluded to this from the beginning as well, that this all came to a head whenever you kind of joined this class that was taught by a progressive Christian pastor. Now, at the time, you didn't have the language for progressive Christian pastor, any of those things. But there was a major red flag early in one of these you know, sessions with this guy. He said he would consider himself a hopeful agnostic. This is a pastor who says, I would consider myself a hopeful agnostic, which for a guy that didn't grow up in church that started going to church on my own as a teenager, trying to figure this out, I didn't you know, get marinated in the Bible stories or something like that. Even I would hear something like that and be like, rip. What did, wait, I'm sorry, what, what did you just say? You're a hopeful agnostic, but you're actually a pastor. But that was kind of the nexus and the hinge point for the remainder of your book. So give our audience a little bit of an idea of this class that you went to and kind of your interactions with this progressive pastor. Right. So my husband and I started attending this church after Zoe Girl came off the road, after we were kind of done with, with the music business. And um, we loved the church. And so the pastor invited me to be a part of this class. And in that first class, he said, I'm a hopeful agnostic. Well, of course, as you can imagine, this red flag goes up. But, you know, this was right at the height and the full blossoming of the emergent movement. So you had people like Brian McLaren and everybody was sort of thinking. And um, and I knew that. I mean, of course, I had a red flag. I was not theologically sophisticated then. I, I was biblically literate. I'd read the Bible and studied the Bible my whole life. Uh, but I, I just didn't know much else. And so I thought when that red flag came, I thought, well, you know, I'm going to, I don't want to be judgmental. So I'm going to keep an open mind. Maybe he's just being really honest, but essentially what the class was, was a tearing down and a deconstructing Mm -hmm. of 
all of the precious beliefs that I'd held about Jesus and God, and especially the Bible. The Bible was under attack more than anything else in this class. And so it, it was much like what you would imagine going off to a, a, a secular or even a Christian these days, university, and having your faith deconstructed by professors. That's kind of what it was like, although I had let my guard down because this was a church. I, I mean, I I would have had my guard up had it been a co- you know, college or something, but my guard was down because I thought this pastor and I were on the same page. But what I found out later, Kyle, that I only found this out even after I wrote my book, uh, is that he actually in during that time he had already been through deconstruction and he was intentionally trying to get people into deconstruction so that he could convert them to progressive christianity and he was really good at it so while i was in the class i would try to debate with him whatever the topic was i'd go home and i'd google stuff yeah. and i I would kind of push back on it but there came a point in time when they invited the spouses to come to the class now by this point my husband was used to me coming home saying Oh my gosh, you won't believe what they talked about this week. But I think when he experienced it for himself, I'll never forget, we we got in the car and he just kind of quietly, he just said, we're done. You're done. We're not raising our kids here. And I was honestly really relieved because I was hanging on because there were Christians in that small class that had just come into the church. This was their first and only experience with Christianity. So I was trying to, to maybe help them, but my faith was getting wrecked. And so it was after that, when, when I, we were away from the church, that all of those doubts began to grow in my own heart. And I was propelled into a deconstruction. I think it's probably more accurate to say that pastor deconstructed me. Um, but you know, and we can continue with that story if, if you like, but I really went through a crisis of faith that that was a deconstruction, although I didn't want that to happen. And I didn't know what that was at that time. Right. We're, we're definitely going to get further into that because uh, my hope and my prayer and my, I'm assuming this is going to happen. That pastor is going to pay for what he's done uh, for helping people deconstruct. Because that's one thing that people don't understand about pastors is they're going to have to give an account one day to God about how they shepherded his flock. And if you do something like that, I'm assuming it's not going to be a great meeting uh, <clears throat> with Father God, but it's kind of this growing. So you talked about deconstruction. So we need to talk a little bit more about deconstruction because that's also part of this ex-evangelical movement. Deconstruction is like this new cool thing to where it's like, <clears throat> I, I don't know why this is coming to my brain, but it's like when you're in high school and everybody likes this band, but you like that band, it's like, oh, I'm going to be the contrarian that likes this band. And oh, everyone likes that movie, but I don't like that movie. That's what deconstruction feels like. But the interesting thing about people that are deconstructing and these progressive Christians, not only do they always deconstruct and then become an ex-evangelical, they become a non-believer. How many people do you know of that, you know, rebuilt up their faith in a particular way? But my contention is that progressive Christians just want to be liked and accepted by the cultural elites. And the cultural elites all just so happen to be secular humanists. And so what is the best way to impress a secular humanist than to say, oh, I've deconstructed my faith and I've gotten rid of all the things that don't jive with your worldview. Aren't I so nice? Will you pat me on the head now? Do you feel like that that's kind of what's happened? Because I feel like this is bursted you know, completely out of the walls of the church at that point, And we're all over culture. We are now downstream from culture and trying to be like it. Part of the problem in the, I'm actually currently writing a book about deconstruction. So I'm deep in the weeds of this right now, doing the research. I've actually met privately via Zoom with people who have big platforms in the deconstruction space. Some some wouldn't meet with us, me and my co-author, but uh, some would. And it's really interesting listening to their stories because in my experience with the people I've talked to, 
um, many are just like what you're describing, where it's kind of like they just didn't like that their parents voted for Trump or they didn't like that, uh, you know, certain things that in their minds were some sort of a moral cause moral confusion for them, which I have theories, I think, because they've already been so influenced by by the world that when but but here's the thing that's so interesting. Most of the people in the deconstruction space who are still retaining the title Christian, which obviously many don't, they'll say, well, I'm just deconstructing the cult, the American cultural aspects of my faith, but I'm, I'm getting to what authentic Christianity is. But remember, we talked about how deconstruction is so closely tied with postmodernism. So in my experience in, with this research, listening to all the deconstruction stories and even talking with many, uh, is that you have this phenomenon where um, they're, they're not trying to identify, authentic, even the sincere ones, they're not trying to identify authentic Christianity based on what the Bible says. Right. They're trying to identify authentic Christianity based on whatever beliefs they perceive to be helpful or harmful, oppressive or not oppressive. So when somebody says, oh, no, 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 I'm just deconstructing the cultural aspects, you need to ask more questions. Because you need to say, well, what are those cultural beliefs that you're deconstructing to get to authentic Christianity? And, and there's going to be two things that are very often said. Number one, substitutionary atonement, because that is being marketed as a belief that was invented to control people, to strike fear in people, to uh, basically to control and to prop up these white supremacist systems uh, so that that I hear a lot. And then the other one is sex, the issue of sexuality. Well, I'm, you know, deconstructing the idea that God wouldn't uh, fully affirm LGBTQ plus and all of that and, and trans ideology and radical gender theory. And so when you when you actually ask the questions, you realize, oh, no, they're deconstructing real Christianity also. So only one or two times have I talked to somebody where they said, no, I'm just, I'm more biblical than I've ever been. And you ask more questions and it's true. And then I say, well, why do you want to use the word deconstruction? And they'll fight for the word a little bit. And then in a couple of cases, they were like, you know what? I don't know why I'm using that word. Maybe I should just call this, you know, sanctification or engaging with my doubts or reforming my faith to make it line up with scripture. So it's this beast of a word that everybody wants to define in a hundred different ways. And everybody, for some reason that I am still trying to figure out, wants to turn it into this positive thing. Well, I think maybe you nailed it on the head. They want to be accepted amongst cultural uh, elites, like the secular elites, because you know what's, what I've observed, Kyle, that tends to happen? When a quote-unquote evangelical thought leader comes out, you know, Roe v. Wade gets overturned. And you'd think we'd be celebrating in the streets, but you have evangelical elites going, oh no, I've fought for this my whole life, but wah, 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 I'm not so sure this is great now because you know, now there's all this confidence. There's so much, you know, nuance. And listen, I'm all for nuance, real nuance to make things clear. But when a lot of elites say we want to nuance something, what I think they actually mean is obfuscation. They want to make it unclear. They want to muddy it so that it can just kind of mean everything. Right. That's postmodernism. And I think what I've noticed is when an elite does that, they get a big write-up in the New York Times or they get a big write-up in some, you know, what they perceive to be this uh, institution that that's credible in their eyes. And they get their, you know, well, like our friend John Cooper says, they get their woke cookies. Yeah. Well, the funny thing about the word nuance is that's a word that dumb people use to sound smart. It's like, oh, this is a this is a nuanced issue. It's like, is it? Is it though? Because that's one thing that I did. 
<clears throat> after the leak came out about the Roe v. Wade decision, um, I basically, you know, bided my time and spent about a week to 10 days kind of absorbing everything. And the one thing that I noticed about a lot of these woke evangelicals or the, these woke Christians, they got real quiet all of a sudden. And then some of these other, you know, kind of like teetotalers, these people are like, they were just like, oh yeah, now they're all of a sudden really, really bold on the pro-life issue. And it looks like they're going to be on the winning side. Right. So I saw both of those things happen, but it's the same thing that would happen with people. So I was supposed to be doing a debate with uh, Kristen something, something, whatever, who wrote Jesus and John Wayne. And the entire book is just this slobbering nonsense about patriarchy and white supremacy. And it read like a jaded girlfriend wrote it. And the thing about it was, is the woman that wrote it, who was supposed to be debating me on Justin Brierley's show at the last minute, it's like, oh, you know, I I just can't really debate this. These people don't want their ideas challenged because they know that they won't uh, stand up to scrutiny. All they want to do is they want to be in their echo chamber with people that agree with them and that are just as intellectually elite as they are. The thing that I'm liking, Elisa, is that a lot of conservatives, so you can talk about it politically, but you can also talk about it in the evangelical Christian world as well. We're not being as nice as we once were because I talk to people that are Democrats that love Mitt Romney because he's essentially a Democrat, but they hate someone like Trump because he's so bombastic and he's so much further to the right than they are. But you have these individuals that are on the conservative side that for years and years and years, they would let you push, push push and their backs against the wall, backs against the wall. And then they'd be like, all right, that's far enough, buddy. You just get out of here. You're making me uncomfortable. But now we're actually pushing back in culture. You know, Undaunted Life, we're here to equip men to push back darkness. You can't allow these people to define everything for you and just sit there and be nice. Because for a lot of these nice guys and nice gals that are in the evangelical world, one day, and I say this all the time, they're going to wake up and the war will be over and they will have never picked up their sword, never put on their armor and never put on their helmet. And then they're going to look around like, what happened? It's like, you happened, dummy. You didn't decide that there was any hill worth dying on. So why do you feel like that's that's constantly happening? Is it, can we just wrap it up in, in Marxian postmodernism or something like that? Or does it go deeper? I've watched church after church go from conservative to progressive. And the main reason that it does that is the mushy middle. It's all the people that actually don't really agree with these new ideologies that are coming in, but they want to be nice. They don't say anything. They don't want to confront anyone. You know, people don't want to make difficult choices and who to maybe they need to make a a, a decision to fire a pastor. I've seen even even people you would think would be like, we got to get on this and take care of this problem. They kowtow to it because they don't want to be perceived as judgmental, maybe or they don't want to do anything rash. And I sort of, in in a sense, I get that tension. We don't want to just be reactionary. We don't want to just go fire some guy after he says one dumb thing, but there has to be like, this is what I tell people. You have to speak up. The things that I'm saying should not be controversial. I'm not saying anything controversial. The new ideologies that are coming in are making those things controversial. But I mean, 20 years ago, nothing I said would have been controversial among Christians. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to change the message because now all of a sudden it's unpopular and it's, you know, it's so just, it's stunning to me how people like maybe me, who is just, I'm literally just saying what we've always been saying about what the Bible says and what the gospel is, are, are being painted as the people who are bringing controversy. I'm not bringing any controversy. I'm just not buying into these new things you're trying to bring into the church. But I honestly think the biggest problem is that mushy middle. It's the moderate people in the middle that actually don't agree, but they don't want to say anything about it because they don't want to cause trouble or make waves. And I've watched churches get swallowed up 
by progressivism, mainly because of that large group that doesn't really agree with it, but they don't say anything. And people are fearful of being shouted down in public about people sending them a bunch of nasty messages online. Maybe they're a business owner and uh, they, they don't want their, their business to get a bunch of one-star reviews or get turned into the local business board or something like that, because that's what these people will do. But what you have to understand is that is a very, very loud minority of people doing those things. And if you just batten down the hatchets and ignore all that for a week or two, anytime this comes your way and just rest in the fact that you're on the right side of the issue. So that's why I talk about the abortion issue so much is because there's so many Christians that are just so unwilling to actually take their ideologies to bedrock. I've talked about this before on the show, but one of my best friends that goes to church with me, uh, and this was before, you know, uh, he kind of changed his mind uh, and due in large part to a lot of things that I talk about on my show, but his entire pro-life ideology fell apart whenever you asked him about rape and incest. And so you would ask him, it's like, hey, are you pro-life? He's like, yeah, pro-life all the way, my friend. And then, well, what if the woman's raped uh, by her uncle? Oh man, I guess we can kill that baby. And it's because they've never thought through these things. They're not a thinking Christian. And so like, there's no nuance to any of their opinions. And then a progressive that is well-versed on these issues, they do, they go one step beyond of univariate analysis and then get your entire worldview to fall apart. And that's one thing that I was very interested in with how you responded whenever you were going through this class and how you responded whenever there was all these people that were deconstructing and, and how you responded to your doubt. So kind of take us through the 30,000 foot view of what you began to do whenever you kept getting hit by these arguments that you couldn't get around. So, yeah. So when I was going through maybe the darkest part of that point was I had a a baby. Well, she was kind of heading more toward hot toddlerhood now. And I was pregnant with my son, my second. And um, I, I, so it was a really weird time in my life, you know, kind of first time mom and isolated away from people anyway. So it was very, it was very lonely. And so I would search online to try to find articles about this progressive Christianity. Of course, I, I didn't know that word yet. I don't think that phrase progressive Christianity was very big yet. Um, it was more like the emergent church. And so I'd be looking for anyone who might be analyzing the movement because it was a huge, I mean, all my friends were falling for all this stuff and deconstructing out of their faith and I couldn't find anything. And so the Lord led me to apologetics, which interesting, this is what was so fascinating to me is when I found people like Frank Turek and Jay Warner Wallace and Greg Kokel and some of these guys, they were interacting with all the same arguments that this pastor had brought about in the class, but they were addressing atheists, but it was all the same stuff. Mm-hmm. So their work and, you know, even diving a lot, they, they were kind of my gateway to get into it. And then I started reading like scholarship and taking seminary classes, auditing seminary classes. Uh, but the deep dive that I did, I mean, it was, I was just so hungry for truth. I needed to know that somebody could answer this pastor because this is how naive I was. I was raised. I love, I love that I was raised this way because it's given me a a perspective, a broader perspective on the church, but I was raised in a bit more of the, the kind of charismatic, um, not the super wacky charismatic, like not hyper hyper, but, um, like I didn't know what hermeneutics was until I was an adult. I never heard that word. Um, so I realized now looking back my, the way I interpreted the Bible was some you know, it was kind of subjective at times. Like I would pick out an old Testament battle, like, you know, and be like, okay, I'm going to be David. And this is how the Lord's going to answer my spiritual battle or something. So, you know, even, but even despite that, because I knew the word and because I really was hungry for the word my whole life, when, when the pastor would take things out of context or even misquote verses, that's when I felt like, okay, 
I'm on the same level here because I know that he's actually taking that. So that made me question all the other things he was saying about church history and about science and about all this other stuff, which made me kind of dig into all those other arguments. So, so for me, it was, it was very holistic and kind of grassroots where it was just like, whatever question I have right now, I need to pursue that. That would open up a can of 10 more questions. And so I just tried to not get overwhelmed, but address each question as it came. But I just, I'm so thankful to my parents for teaching me to think critically because I mentioned my dad was kind of this hippie musician, which did kind of cause him to have this idea of like, I'm, I'm going to question, you know, the man. I'm, I'm not going to just go with whatever the guy on the stage says. So I grew up listening to my parents discuss the sermon and even disagreeing with each other on what they thought maybe the pastor was saying. So I never had this perception that I just had to listen to that authority and, and take it in. So I was always taught to measure it against scripture. And so I'm thankful for that grounding because it made me question the pastor and I, at the time, I was so naive. I thought he was thinking up all these things for the first time. But I knew deep down, I was like, there is no way that the church has been around for 2,000 years if it could be taken down this easily. There has to be somebody who knows the answers to these things. And so I'm so thankful for the faithfulness of God to lead me into that deep study of uh, apologetics and theology and uh, hermeneutics and church history and all the things, but this was over the course of several years. Mm -hmm. So it was five, six, I think maybe even seven years of this deep study to become settled in my own faith. But I'm, I'm thankful that he shepherded me through that. Well, and the thing is, is a lot of people think that if you have to do deep study on something that it's, it's inappropriate. I remember listening to a podcast years ago. It was the bad Christian podcast. It was like one of the members of the band Emory and a couple other guys and like, Hey, we're going to cuss and we're going to do whatever because we're cool. We're like the, you know, the counterculture Christians or whatever. But I remember this one quote that one of the guys on the show, I can't remember which one said, he's like, if something has to have deep level apologetics, then it's probably not true. It's like, if you have to constantly, you know, work through your arguments and if you have to constantly read and study and all these things, then the core of the message is not easy enough to be understood. And I remember thinking to myself, what is this person talking about? This person that's supposedly, uh, you know, a Christian and all these different things. And and I was going to ask you about this later, but I guess it kind of goes to this point. You know, uh, there's an issue that I have with folks that are kind of in the reformed Calvinist camp, which I, I lean more towards that side of things, because these people seemingly want to argue to death about the most obscure things, and they can't seem to present the gospel in one sentence, right? That that they can't in one sentence tell somebody how that they, they can be saved. And it causes people, even Christians, to be very worried about their own salvation. The more that I've studied Calvinism and gone into those ideologies and I've argued uh, this with John Cooper, I've, I haven't had more attacks on my personal faith than in those moments. It's like, man, am I actually saved? Is my fruit tasty enough Like for all these things that are happening? I talked to this one guy and I, he's a reformed guy and I'm talking to him later on the show. So I won't use him by name, but I, I told him that I was like, I don't think a Calvinist can tell me in one sentence how to be saved. And this dude literally launched into a 10 minute explanation of reformed Calvinist systematic theology. And I'm just sitting there taking it. And I'm like, you're proving my point. Every single time you give me another sentence, you're proving my point. And so the thing about the Calvinism and all that is like, what did Christians do for the first 1500 years of Christianity before John Calvin was born? It started like thinking things up. But the thing is, is if I'm asking these questions and I'm marinated in it all day, what about the guy that is doing good to get to church two or three times a week and doing his best to kind of lead his family? That's kind of where I have this inner dissonance on, yeah, let's go deep. Let's figure out all the, the her, you know, hermeneutics and theology and all that. But at the same time, we're making it so unbelievably complicated that it's almost unattainable. 
That is so interesting that you would actually bring up Bad Christian Podcast and the reform thing, because I actually went on the Bad Christian Podcast. I think it was in 2017. It was the first sort of publicly, you know, not it wasn't hostile because I talked with Joey. He was really nice, but it was definite disagreement. Yeah. And one of the things he asked me was about that. You know, why, how can you claim to know what the gospel is when you guys can't even agree between Calvinists and non-Calvinists about what yeah, I, I I had no idea you were on the show. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it was like, it was from, it was a good conversation, I thought. But um, so what's interesting, it's funny that you, that's your experience because I'm also, I'm not reformed, but everybody thinks I am. So that's like one of the number one questions that I get because I, I really defend penal substitutionary atonement, which is not one of the, the you know, points of tulip, by the way, everybody, that's just like a Christian approach to the atonement. But, um, but I get that question a lot. And and I, but, but mostly the reform people are like, cool with me. I think they're like, we kind of like her. We're, we'll get her saved eventually, but we like her. Um, but, but yeah, I get what you're saying. I think that, um, and I think that's probably the main reason I'm not reformed. I, this is what I've said to my, my Calvinists. And by the way, love reformed teachers. I I've learned a lot from them, uh, read books and learned so much from scholars who are reformed for sure. Um, but the main thing I, it boils down to for me is I don't even think I'm rejecting Calvinism. I just don't understand it. And when I talk with a, a, a Calvinist friend at, and I keep asking questions and they always, and you know, please, I know there's reformed people listening to us. We, I love you guys. I love you guys. I love please, you too. Yeah. Don't email me because I'm not going to debate you on an email. But, um, but you know, when I ask the people in my life who I know and love who are Calvinists and we can have this conversation and I asked deeper questions, you know, what, what, how does this work together? And at the, at the bottom of it, I can never, if I can't understand it, then I can't affirm it. Right. And, and so, you can't share it either. Right. And so, so I, I think there's some validity. I would agree with what you're saying um, that, you know, I mean, of course, not an issue to divide over, but um, I just don't, I, I think I don't understand it at, at the, at the bottom. There's a, yeah. there's a logical, in, uh, there's a logical contradiction at the bottom of it that I can't resolve. And we, as a church, we, we do try to resolve those. Like, you know, God is one, God is three. He's one being three persons. Like, how do we solve that? Well, we come, we, we come up with the word Trinity and we hammer that out, but with the, what's at the bottom of the reformed deal, I, I can't resolve it. So. Well, also, uh, Lisa, I think that there's, and, and again, I love the, the Calvinist reform folks as well. Again, if I had to put, plant my flag somewhere, it'd be in and around their camp, to, to be honest. Like I'm not Armenian. I'm not any of those things. But there seems to be this intellectual snobbery that they love how complicated it is because they have figured it out or they're pretending that they figured it out. And so they look at a guy like me that, you know, I don't have enough intellectual power to, you know, lightly toast a piece of bread. And I get it. Like, I just wasn't gifted in that way. Like, I'm not smart. I just talk good. Right. But it's just kind of one of those things that's interesting to me that I, I asked these Calvinist folks and these reform folks, I'm like, why, why, if there is election, then why do you have Calvinist missionaries? Explain that to me. And I know there's an answer, but they can't do it in a cogent way that helps me understand how I can apply it. Because that's one thing that we do here with our show is like, it's great to have all this, you know, exegetical, deep theological knowledge, but how do you apply it at the school board meeting? Like, how do you apply it in your home when your kid says, hey, daddy, you know, my teacher says that, you know, since I like, you know, girl things sometimes that I might actually be a girl. Is, is that a real thing? How do we apply it? And it's like, if I can't understand the main point, 
then I certainly don't know how to apply it to a real world world situation. But we're going to get off that before, you know, Calvinists, because again, they love arguing and drinking their IPA. So I don't want them throwing stuff at me whenever they see me, you know, at their cigar shop or something like that. I do want to talk about one more thing for your from your book before we kind of bounce out of it. And again, guys, another gospel. It's a fantastic book because you go into so much detail on all those different questions about why you started reading the early church fathers and, and you know why you gave this much attention to this thing or that thing. But this was kind of one of the main points here because I think it, it really speaks to our time right now. It's this quote. However, with their denial of the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, many progressive Christians take it one step further. Jesus is no longer our savior, but an example of how we can do good works in the world and forgive others. That has become the highest virtue, and all other true claims or truth claims are judged by it. Thus, the progressive progressive gospel is Jesus plus social justice. That's where we're at right now, because the Christians that felt bullied into posting a black square you know, after, you know, George Floyd died in police custody a couple of years ago, uh, these, and they were doing it because uh, we wanted to be nice and we wanted to be inclusive and, and we didn't want people to think we were racist. And the only way to signal that apparently is by posting a black square on Instagram and those types of things. But yes, we have added to the gospel that it's not just Jesus anymore. It's Jesus plus do these things that happen to align with a very particular secular worldview. Am I crazy? No, I, I think you're right. And that was an interesting social test of where people were at, because I think even more than anything, people were doing that because it was really just, I don't know how to articulate this. I don't even think for most people it was to be inclusive or to be, you know, loving or or anything. I think it was just, I don't want to be marked as the person who didn't do it. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's a really bad like way to make decisions. That's a terrible way to decide what you're going to post on social media or not post on social media. But with cancel culture and everything we see in Twitter, I I got off Twitter. I just, it's too toxic for me. I just, I just can't with Twitter. And because I constantly, every time I opened my Twitter, I felt pressured to signal something that, okay, today I'm on board with the mob. So I got to say this, or I got to say that. I just like, I don't need that in my life. And so, no, you're not crazy. I think what that demonstrated and ever really since 2020 and COVID and everything, it's really, it's, I think it shined a big light on where everybody's hearts were at. And, uh, and a lot of that was hard to navigate. That was really tough to navigate, but it's interesting that I I can, I traveled all through COVID speaking and, and things. And so I don't know if it was just maybe the churches that were trying to stay open during COVID that would have me in, but I experienced like the church of Jesus Christ thriving all over the country and being very unified on, on things. And um, so I think in many ways it, it unified the, the church, not just COVID, but all the things that were going on in that time. And then the, this confrontation with the critical social justice ideologies that were coming in Um yeah, it's just, it's fascinating to me how that divided the church. Well, and it's continuing to divide the church. It's dividing denominations, and you have people that are, you know, the SBC, they're trying to decide whether they're going to do this or do that. But it is splitting churches as well. Because, you know, I was talking to, to a pastor here recently, and he said he got back-to-back emails, literal back-to-back emails. One was, hey, man, you don't talk about race enough in your church, so I'm leaving. The very next email, hey, you talk about race way too often, and for that, I'm leaving. And so it's put a lot of pastors in a really, really tough spot because, again, the church has accepted its position as being downstream of culture, or mm-hmm. they've gone to the other extreme 
you know, this theonomy uh, type of extreme, which is hard for people to, to really look at as well. So I feel like that puts a bow on another gospel. So guys, again, that is in the show notes, but I think that this all dovetails into the book that you have coming out later this year. I believe it's on October the 18th. So it's called live your truth and other lies, exposing popular deceptions that make us anxious, exhausted, and self-obsessed. Now I'm going to be real honest with you, Elisa. You tricked me initially with the name because when I saw you post and I saw live your truth, I was like, oh my gosh, I've been following this girl for all this time and now she's going to go woke on me. What happened? And then I read the next things and I was like, oh, okay, okay, we're good here. So you got me. So I'm sure that was, you know, some very, very smart person that made sure you named your book that, but talk to me a little bit about that book. And so is this the book that you're, you're in the middle of, of writing right now, trying to complete for, for release later this year? So no, this one is finished and I'm actually okay. wishing that I would have made the, uh, the second half of the title a little bit bigger on the book so that people would see that it's and other lies. Although I wonder though, if there might not be some advantage to people saying, oh, live your truth. I want to do, I'm going to get this. Right. Book. Exactly. So, um, no, this book is already written and completely finished, ready to come out. Uh, and I wanted to write it because with another gospel, another gospel was much more of a mem it's kind of a memoir meets theological treatise. So it's, it's engaging with all of the pushback from progressive Christians and then helping give Christians language to refute those things and to interact with progressive Christianity. But there's this broader thing happening that I really wanted to address in a book, and that is these sort of social media influencers a lot of them are women, but there are men too. And a lot of men following these women, interestingly, people like Jen Hatmaker, Glennon Doyle, Rachel Hollis. And they're sort of in that progressive milieu, but they're influencing way beyond that. And they're, they're, they have big platforms in the secular spaces, and yet they're still identifying themselves as Christians. And so after reading their books, I thought, this really needs to be addressed. So in, originally, this book was going to be a, a book for women because these are, you know, primarily dealing with Glenn and Doyle. But honestly, we ch we changed the title. The title was going to be something else. We changed the title to make it more neutral because so many men, I personally know men who read Glenn and Doyle's book and then came out of the closet and left their families. So these the influence of these women and others is really profound which just and so each chapter in the book addresses one of the lies that is coming from that world so things like live your truth you are enough that's a big one you only live once you're perfect just as you are uh i'm trying to think you know love means i, I forget what the chapter's about but it's like love means just accepting everyone so it's these kind of big cultural slogans that are not just exclusive to progressive Christianity, but they're being filtered out into the church and into secular culture through progressive Christianity. So it's it's the book you'd want to give somebody who kind of follows Jen Hatmaker, but they're like, I don't agree with everything she says, but she's really funny and I like her and she gives good you know cooking advice and she's really funny about her kids. Like give them this book because I think that it's going to be persuasive. It's not going to be persuasive for the, you know, the person who's all in on that, but I think it's going to give Christians language to go, why is you aren't enough wrong? Why is that wrong? And um, so, and there's, it's, there's a lot of humor in the book too. So I do a lot of storytelling and, and so hopefully it's engaging for people. 
Well, most of those things, I'm excited to read it and have you on to talk about it again later this year. But most of those things, again, it kind of goes back to bumper sticker Christianity. It's like, how can you disagree with live your truth? Because it sounds so cute. And when you put it on like, you know, the side of a brick wall in some sort of cutesy downtown or midtown area, and you take your little selfie with it and all that, it feels good. It's like this, even though it doesn't mean anything, you could have said, fuh, 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 and it would have given the same amount of, but it makes people feel good. It gives them the, the those warm fuzzies inside of them. And and then it kind of leads them on. It's that inspiration. And I'm, I talk about inspiration all the time as being one of the worst motivators possible, because if you wait until the moment that you feel inspired to get in shape or inspired to, you know, learn more about a particular book of the Bible, it's probably never going to strike you, brother. And so one of the things is, is you have to be disciplined enough in your approach to life, be able to get all of your different theological, uh, theological underpinnings to bedrock. And so I'm excited to kind of look at that, even though it's, you know, probably a little bit different than some of the stuff I do take down of the year. I read some, some kind of crazy dark stuff, and I'm glad you tackle some of these subjects. But there's no real great transition to kind of talk about this, but I did want your opinion on this because I'm not sure exactly when this will come out. But just recently, there was uh, the release of the SBC report about the sexual abuse inside the SBC. Literally, Elisa, right before we hopped on this interview, I was watching a video on Victor Marx's Instagram of this pastor that had raped a 16-year-old girl for for years, one of the his congregants. And he was, you know, this came out in the SBC report. And so he's up in front of his church and, you know, asking for forgiveness and basically trying to grease the wheel so he could keep his job. Oops, the girl that he had been raping for all the at that time, went up on stage and snatched the microphone and talked. And I was so mad at Lisa that I could spit nails. And the, the thing is, is we see a lot of this, unfortunately, these prominent pastors that fall into serious sexual sin. So you have Ravi Zacharias, all the stuff that came out after he passed away. You did a long, uh, really well, really well thought out YouTube video on that. Carl Lentz from Hillsong. And then you had Brian Houston basically hiding the sexual impropriety of his father. You have Bill Hybels. You have all these people just pick one. And part of it for me is the good thing I think about it is, is for people that were worshiping at the altar of Carl Lentz aren't going to do that anymore, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe they're going to think twice about the next super cool dude, bro, who hangs out with KD and Justin Bieber and says, is there anything else there aside from the cool clothes and the funny glasses? Because I think that it's kind of woken some people up to be like, wait a minute. If I base my salvation on something that Ravi Zacharias said, and my salvation can disappear because we found out that he was a horrible sexual deviant. It means that they were probably never saved to begin with. So talk to me a little bit about that because the sexual sin epidemic, we love to talk about the Catholic church, but then Protestants get real, real uncomfortable when we talk about it on our side. And I love it. I want more of it. I want more people to be called out. I want these people in jail. And if not, tell me where the lynch mobs meeting, but before I get myself in any more trouble, you go for it. Well, no, listen, I, I think that you need to take that message into the progressive world because the perception in the progressive Christian world is that anybody who holds to conservative theology is just trying to cover all this stuff up and we don't want anything exposed. But like you, I want it exposed. Right. I have uh, friends who have been through horrific uh, experiences of spiritual abuse under narcissistic pastors. I want all that stuff exposed. And, uh, you know, honestly, I want the church to be what the church is supposed to be, not not following the model, this business model that the world has laid out. Um, but, you know, the thing about the Ravi thing, it's interesting. That probably should have hit me harder personally than it did because Ravi was the first apologist I ever heard. Mm -hmm. So when I was crying out to God in this dark place, I, I remember just saying, Lord, if you're real, if everything I've believed my whole life is actually true, please send somebody who can talk to me and give me some answers. Because at the time, Kyle, I didn't know 
anybody who could answer these questions. So this right. pastor. Hit me. So I was in the car and I, I talk about this in the book. I was um, wondering who it was. I wrote in the margins of the book. I wonder who it was that you were thinking about. That's interesting. It was I, Ravi. I didn't say his name in the book for the same reason Frank Turek took Ravi's introduction out of his book. And I like the way Frank said this. He said, I don't ever want one of Ravi's victims to have to read his name, at least in, you know, in my work. So yeah. I, I just took it out because I didn't want someone to be tripped up by that. But, um, but I have addressed it publicly. So yeah, it was Robbie. So I hear this voice on the radio answering all the questions of this pastor I'd been asking almost in order. And so it was through Robbie, you know, his radio program that I discovered Southern Evangelical Seminary, which is pretty much where I planted roots from then on, discovering people like Frank Turek and Jay Werner Wallace, and then the SES professors that were just so gracious to let this stay-at-home mom you know, annoy them in the class discussion groups and ask all the questions. I had no idea how academia worked. Like I was calling professors by their first names. I just had, <laughs> I, had no, I didn't know how any of that worked. And I was just driving everybody crazy. But I think, you know, ultimately they, they loved that. That's why they're there. They want to help people with their questions. But, you know, when, the, and then when the Robbie thing happened, um, it, it was, you know, I waited for the report because I wanted, I wanted to be sure that the allegations were true. I don't think we should just believe everything everybody says. I think there things need to be vetted. I get people say a lot of things about me every day that I know are not true. So it makes me kind of skeptical. And I think that's, there's a healthy approach to that skepticism. But when the report came out and it was like, this is, this happened, like, this is irrefutable. Um, it didn't shake my faith at all. Not, not even a little bit. Uh, so my, my instinct was to go on YouTube and try to help other people walk through that because I had a suspicion it was rocking the faith of others. And the reason it didn't rock my faith is because my parents taught me from a very early age not to put faith in a person. That, and growing up with, you know, in, in a ministry family, you know that ministers are not perfect. So you don't expect them to be. You don't have them on a pedestal of thinking. Now, obviously, I, I didn't foresee the horrific um, thing that was going on with Ravi. Um, it was hard to believe, honestly, but, um, you know, I didn't put my faith in Ravi. I never put my faith in Ravi. Uh, God certainly used his message to help me and to lead me to other folks that were reliable. But, um, yeah, I think, I think this cultural celebrity Christianity is very dangerous. Um, I, I, I have a lot of tension with having a YouTube platform and how I approach social media. I don't tend to post tons of personal pictures. And because I, I mean, there's a certain sense in which people do connect with you as a person and they connect with my story. And I think there's something good and godly and healthy about that, but that can cross really easily over into uh, just like, Hey, I'm going to find the person that I'm just going to emulate them every day. And that can be really dangerous. If that's not a person that's in your life, discipling you in real life, who knows your stuff, you know, their stuff, and you're walking through it together because the temptation to put people on that kind of a pedestal is really strong and the way, and social media just fuels it. So like when I'm, when I, uh, we're, we were looking for a church about four years ago. And one of the first things I did was go to the pastor, the main teaching pastor. I went to his Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook just to see what he's trying to build. There was nothing. There was no platform building. There was just, hey, we're meeting at seven. Everybody come if you want to be there. Right. You know, just, and I was like really impressed by that. I'm like, this guy's not trying to become a national star. He's shepherding his local flock. And that's what I was looking for. So um, yeah. I think it's really important that you bring all that up because we are built to worship, but it's way easier to worship 
a person that we can see and touch and follow on Instagram than the creator God of the universe, because we can't see him the exact same way. So I think that that's really important as well, but back on the Ravi thing, and then we'll put a bow on that and then move on. I think it's somewhat, uh, well, I think we need to be cautious as Christians canceling someone's entire catalog of theological work because of something they've done that was sinful. So I was talking about this with somebody um, and they vehemently disagree with me, which is totally fine. But I was just like, I'm not going to stop saying origin, meaning, morality, destiny. I'm not going to stop walking through, you know, worldviews using that framework. Now, for me, I will say an apologist taught me this origin, meaning, morality, destiny, or those types of things. Because again, just using the name becomes very problematic. And I'm so stupid. About two weeks before the the report came out, I did an episode of my podcast called R.A.P. Ravi Zacharias. And here I am two weeks later because I waited too long. And then here I am having to eat crow a little bit. But that was a point that I made is like, you can still watch his videos and still listen to the things that he said, but couch it with the understanding that again, he was a horrifically a terrible sexual deviant. And for me personally, I wish that he was alive whenever that report came out, right? He died in a horrific way with the cancer that he had, but I wish he would have had to have dealt with those people while he was here. We know that he received judgment for those things. But uh, again, I think that it's, you have to be cautious about canceling someone's entire catalog, unless you're a Carl Lentz or a Brian Houston or one of those people, whenever it's like your catalog probably should be canceled from the very, very beginning. But I do want to talk about your podcast and your show, because obviously you do have a fairly large profile. You have a successful YouTube channel. The Alyssa Childers podcast is great. Whenever I popped right right onto the scene and I was kind of climbing the charts, I kept seeing your picture on there. I'm like, who's this chick? And then it's like, oh, it's a Zoe girl, girl. And I didn't have the negative response that everybody else did. Like, we can't listen to her. She used to be in a pop group. I just thought it was cool that we were, you know, in the same uh, area on all these different charts. So talk to me about that a little bit, because there are people that don't feel the need to have one of these channels or have one of those things but there are a lot of people that are connecting with your message. Yeah. And I've been really thankful for that. And I'm also, you know, I think there's a benefit to being underestimated. You know, I I've had people say, Oh, what does she know? She's a ex pop star or this or that. And well, wasn't um, it the veggie tales people that whatever dumb podcast they have, they're like, are we really going to listen to the Zoe girl? Per-? It's like, yeah, that's your analysis of her entire life. You loser. Like well, anyway, What's hilarious about that is it's like, well, then do we pick Larry the Cucumber or Zoe Girl? Like, take your pick because, I mean, if you're going to if you're going to take that line of argument, don't be Larry or Bob the Tomato or whichever one he was. I don't know. But um, yeah, so I think there's a there's can be a benefit to being underestimated. I, I openly say, look, I have zero college degrees. I have zero credentials or authority to say anything I'm saying. So therefore take what I'm saying and vet it. See if I'm telling the truth. Go look at the sources, look at my sources, my primary sources, am I telling the truth? You can agree with me or disagree with me. But I think that a lot of people have uh, discovered my work because they're facing their boots on the ground in their churches. And they're, they're seeing, you know, it's interesting. A lot of progressives will say, oh, she doesn't understand progressive Christianity. That's kind of their main thing about me. And it's like, okay, that's fine. But, but I've got 80% of the people who are writing me emails saying what you've described is exactly what I'm facing right. in the church. And so that's, that's what I need to hear to know, okay, I'm on the right track. I am definitely describing what people are going through and it's, and hopefully it is helping people. So, you know, the journey for me was very difficult. It was very lonely. There wasn't, like I said, anybody sort of analyzing this movement as a whole when I was trying to figure it out. And so it's the greatest joy of my life. When somebody says, I saw this happening in my church, 
I didn't know what it was. I had red flags, but I felt very confused. Then I read your book or I listened to a video and then I had language and I understood what was happening to me. And that is just like the greatest joy and it makes it worth it. And this is the thing too, you were talking earlier about, you know, people saying nasty things on social media. I can tell you from experience, like you will not die. I have a feeling you know this too. You will not die if somebody calls you stupid. You will not die. And people, this is the thing. Paul talked about spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. When you do that and you're doing it right, it's not going to hit anybody neutral. It's not going to hit anybody in the nuance zone or in the neutral zone. It's going to, they're going to love it or they're going to hate it. And that's because the gospel has a smell. And Paul said to those who are being saved, it's the fragrance of life, but to those who are perishing, it's death. So we need to speak the truth and we need to, of course, in love and all of that and persuasively and as winsomely as we can. But the fact of the matter is, is one of the questions I always get is, how do I make a case for biblical sexuality in a way that won't offend anyone? And my answer to that is you cannot. You it's can't. Yeah. That's not a thing you can actually do. Now, you can, you can do your best to try to not you know, be a bulldozer or a bull in a china shop with it. But ultimately, when you get to what it is, people are going to love it or they're going to hate it. And they're going to say nasty things about you if you're, if you're not saying what they like. But, you know, like I said, you're not going to die. And those who are looking for truth are going to find it and it's going to smell like life to them. That's what we want. Yeah. And we shouldn't be casting our pearls before swine. And I've told people this as well. If all the hate's coming on one of these things, I'm holding up a phone for those just listening to this. Guess what I can do, Elisa? (laughs) I can set it down and not pick it up and not look at it. But I will tell you, for me personally, I'm so competitive and I'm so critical. Like literally, if people had to hear my internal self-dialogue, they would be astonished at how you know mad and angry I am at me all the time. But when you give me a one-star rating because you don't like my intro, outro music of my podcast, or you think I talk too fast, or you think my face looks dumb, like I will internalize that over the, the hundred last positive five-star comments that I've gotten. So I do have to kind of check that a little bit. But again, it's like, whose am I? Do I belong to these people? Do I belong to these nerds that are spending their time on their day giving me a one-star review because I said something that didn't jive with their personal worldview? Or am I owned by Christ? Is that the person that I'm serving? Am I serving the likes? Am I serving you know, the shares? Am I serving the five-star reviews? Or am I trying to serve Christ? So that's something that I always try to do as well. But Elisa, we've, we've gone everywhere in this conversation, but I do like to kind of close out some of my interviews with a segment that I call, what would you say to someone that said? So I'm going to say, what would you say to someone that said, and then I'm going to fill in the blank with something. And regardless of what I say, you have 30 seconds maximum to respond to that. Okay. So this is lightning round. If you go past 30 seconds, I will make it awkward. So are you up for it? Uh, Sure. Okay. Let's go. We'll we'll ease into it as much as we can, but you know, we got several. So here's the first one. Yeah. Yeah. Are you going to set your own stopwatch? Yeah. I'm okay with that. All right. Here we go. First one here. What would you say to someone that said, I hate contemporary Christian music? Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if I've got a response to that. I don't think I would try to convince them to like it or hate it. I, I'm not a, I don't follow contemporary Christian music personally, so I don't really know what's popular right now. And I might just say, that's fine. You don't have to like it. Yeah. You're into what you're into. All right. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said, why would I listen to the Zoe girl chick about apologetics? Well, I would just say you don't have to listen to the Zoe Girl Chick. Go listen to Frank Turek, listen to Jay Warner Wallace, listen to Kyle, listen to the Undaunted Podcast, listen to Natasha Crane, uh, Melissa Doherty. I just give them a list of resources. You know, if you don't want to listen to me, that's you don't have to. 
So. You know, I'm going to clip that out because in the same breath, you said Jay Warner Wallace, Frank Turek, and me. So I think I'm Christian famous all of a sudden. Thank you for dubbing me Christian famous. I appreciate that. Let's keep going. What would you say to someone that said, pastors don't care about people. They care about money. Uh, I would just say you are most likely buying into a social media narrative in which there are tons of platforms that all they do is find some wacky guy from some church somewhere and they promote it out and say, this is what most evangelicals believe. It's not true. I travel a lot. And I go to churches all over the country where there are humble pastors serving their congregations, authentic, true, genuine Christians. And it's just not true. All right. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said you shouldn't need apologetics to understand God? Uh, I would say I would ask them one question about something they believe about God, try to refute it and then demonstrate to them why they need to be able to give an answer for what they just said they believe. Absolutely. Great answer. We got a few more here. What would you say to someone that said the lion of Judah is too scary for me to contemplate? Wow. I've never heard that one. You know what? Hey, here, we're going to pause. I'm going to pause my own thing here. We're going to come back to that. And that's how we're going to end it. So let me go through the rest of these. We're going to come back to that one. And I'll explain why I asked you that specifically. You cool with that? Yeah. All right. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said Zoe girl should make a comeback? I agree. We should. We've actually talked about it. So we we all have kids now. And for about, I don't know, maybe 10 years, we've been talking about making a lullaby album with some of the songs that we sang to our babies when they were little. And it just, we're just so busy. It never happens. Hey, but we can figure it out. I think the world, the inner 12 year old girl in me needs to make sure that that happens. So we'll, we got a couple more here and then we'll end with the line of Judah stuff. What would you say to someone that said a loving God wouldn't allow bad things to happen to good people? Hmm. Um, well, I would say that that sounds actually like an unloving God who would not allow bad things to happen. Well, first of all, there are no good people, you know, in the, in a moral sense, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But if God doesn't allow us to make choices and bear the consequences of those choices, then he's not a loving God because love in my view requires choice. You can't just, you can program people to behave a certain way so that nothing bad ever happens and they don't do anything bad to each other, but then you're overriding their complete free will. And then at that point, they're just robots that have been programmed to behave a certain way. And that's not love. A world full of automatons is not a world worth creating. That's what C.S. Lewis said. All right, last one here. And then we'll, we'll close out. What would you say to someone that said, I'm afraid my pastor is going woke? Mm. speak up, speak up. And you can do that respectfully, but don't just stay silent and wait. You can take, you maybe take notes. Every time he says something that causes you questions, write it down, take your questions to him in a meeting, be respectful. Uh, I, I tend to think sometimes these meetings don't go well, but do it anyway, speak up. And then if there comes a point when it's not received and it's very clear that the church is going off the rails, leave. And honestly, somebody else said this, but take as many people with you as you can. Absolutely. So I know we're running up against time here, but let me give you a little bit more context to that line of Judah question. So it was, what would you say to someone that said the line of Judah is too scary for me to contemplate? So part of the reason why this is our logo, I've got a lion over my shoulder here. Why, why we look at that, why I sign off every podcast with keep seeking the lion of Judah is because we are over, we are overwhelmed with the description of the lamb of God. Mm -hmm. which gives us an incomplete understanding of the totality of who Jesus is. Now, people have heard me say that and they're like, oh, you're saying the lamb of God isn't important. And you're saying we should only focus on the line of Judah, you heretic and all that. And it's like, okay, well, I can't fix stupid in every single scenario. But the, the thing is, is for a lot of men, they don't, 
they don't understand the lamb as much naturally, whereas they do understand the lion. But every time I go speak to a group of men, I'll have them raise their hand. I say, hey, if in the last year you can recall a time when your pastor said, lamb of God, raise your hand. 100% of the hands go up every single time. And then I have them put their hands down. I say, in the last year, if you can recall a time when your pastor mentioned the lion of Judah, two, three hands in a large room of people. And I think that it gives Christians an unequal understanding of who Jesus is because he didn't come 50% grace and 50% truth. He's 100% grace and 100% truth. Yes. He lives outside of mathematics. He lives outside of all these things. You're so, now, yeah. <laughs> well, but, but, so let me kind of tee that up for you then. A lot of people don't like thinking about the line of Judah. They don't like the Jesus that, you know, uses premeditated violence to clear the temple because, you know, with righteous aggression, they like the Jesus that tells them how cute they look in their tunic and kisses them on their noses. Why do we deal like that? Man, that's a great question. I think it's because with the influence of progressive Christianity, they have uh, brought in this idea that Jesus is just this kind of meek, mild, hippie guru that's smoking pot and just loving on everybody and, and all of this. And I think that what that does is that separates Jesus actually claimed to be the God of the Old Testament. And the God of the Old Testament is the same one that uh that commanded Israel to go in and wipe out the Canaanites because of their just uh, profound wickedness that he gave them 400 years to repent for. So he's a God of judgment. Mm -hmm. Jesus is the judge. And so we like to just ignore and sweep under the rug, the revelation, Jesus, who's coming back to make war with his enemies. Like you, I, I've started to talk that way more with young people because I don't think they're even aware of a Jesus that's coming back to make war with his enemies. But ultimately we all have a choice. We can be at war with him or we can be at peace with him. Aren't you so glad you have the choice to be at peace with him? And the, the reason we want him to be the victor in all of the wars is because he's going to end evil, but he's also provided a way to end evil without ending us. And that's like the best news I can think of. But this is difficult news to convince people of if they don't understand their sinners, which is a hard that's a hard sell in this culture. But if you know you're a sinner, you want Jesus to be the lion of the tribe of Judah because you need something with, you need a leader with some teeth that can end the evil that's wreaking havoc all over the world. It's kind of the thing culturally is uh, we're scared of the sheepdogs. So we want them to be quiet until we're in trouble and we need a sheepdog. And then we're wondering where they're at. It's like, I'm so sorry you let the wolves take over, right? And now the sheep are suffering because the sheepdog scared you. Meekness, which does not mean weakness, but this unbelievable power that is bridled to where it's only used when it's necessary is a hard concept to wrap your brain around, but God, you need it. You absolutely need it. And whenever the time comes and you need that you know, unbridled power, well, if you've castrated the horse at that point, it's going to become a massive issue for you and your, your flock. So again, I feel like we could flow for another half hour on that, but you got places to be, I got places to be. But as for now, that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, I just, I love this. This was so fun. I really, really enjoyed it. I wish that you could debate Kristen Dumay. I'd really love to personally see that. So I, maybe I you can keep pushing. That. Hey, I keep picking fights. I keep, you know, every time I'm on someone else's show, I mention her name and I want her to keep hearing it because she needs to have that ridiculous worldview destroyed. But I, yeah, I, I'm not holding my breath. I tried to get through the book and I, I will finish it. I, did, I was walking through it with a book club, but it, it was like somebody was asking me to read a book of fiction that I wasn't even interested in. It, it, was, <laughs> it was just the, the, I couldn't even believe what I was reading. So I really hope that you get to, to 
debate her. Sometime. Well, and the thing is, is I'm a nice guy. I just have some pretty rough ginger edges. Like, it's okay. Like, I've said some things in this podcast you probably wouldn't repeat. It just kind of is what it is. But I kind of made a mistake where I, I read before I go to bed. I couldn't read that book before I would go to bed because I would be up for the next two hours, like basically screaming at the wall. But again, I'm trying to bring this thing to a close. Kyle, you can do it. Alisa Childers, thank you for coming on on Daunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank you. I loved it. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Elisa Childers. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost at Undaunted Life. Our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got a link to two books today. One is Another Gospel. That's the one that we spent a lot of our time talking about today. And the other one is the one we mentioned toward the end of the interview, which is Live Your Truth and Other Lies. That is book uh, the book that she's going to be putting out later on this year, so you can go and pre-order that now. I've also got a link to her website, YouTube channel, Instagram, and Facebook. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to this episode. We do appreciate it wherever you're listening to this. Please subscribe rate and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>